Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to be covering the killers and victims of the Texas killing fields from the 1980s. So we have a few episodes on this. We'll talk about those in a minute. But we're always going to tell you about the parameters of our research at the top. So we looked at victims on the stretch of I-45 between Galveston and League City. In our research, we have found 47 women who have disappeared or have been murdered. And that's from 1974 to 2020. The ages range from nine years old to 57 at the time of their disappearance. Along Calder Road in League City, Texas, there is a small field that has been dubbed the Texas Killing Fields because the remains of four women have been found there. A larger expanse has begun to be known as the Texas Killing Fields, which includes not only the field, but also the entire stretch of I-45 between Galveston and the Houston area surrounding it. Today, we'll be covering the victims and their killers from the 1980s, as I mentioned before. We have released other episodes from the Texas Killing Fields, but you don't need to listen to those in order to listen to today's. So we've released, at this point, we have Calder Road, Unsolved Killers and Victims from the 1970s. Calder Road and Unsolved both also have cases from the 1980s, but we're not going to cover them again today. We're also going to have another episode in the future on the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, it's crazy that it's gone on that long. Yeah, it really, really is. And we've done our best to bring this to you in bite-sized pieces so that you aren't weighed down with the awful amount of women that have been lost. Yeah. And we've talked about it before, but we did try to do just one big Texas Killing Field episode. Oh, my gosh. And it is way too heavy to put into one episode. So we did have to break it up a little bit so it was easier to talk about and I'm sure easier to listen to because it's just tragedy after tragedy. Also, I think that there's what what goes missing when they're condensed is the fact that these are human women who we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes like this laundry list of gore if you don't kind of take a beat and really discuss it. Yeah, great. So today we are going to start with the murder of Rebecca Beard, and it's from March of 1986. And Rebecca went by Becky by friends. So Becky was last seen at the Excalibur Club in Texas, and she worked at a car dealer. She was reported missing in 1986 by her family. Paul Galen Taylor was suspected early on, but it wasn't until he began bragging about the crime that the prosecutor said that they would be able to press charges. Taylor confessed in 1995. So there was years between where he was suspected versus when he finally confessed. So even though he had confessed and he was convicted, her remains still have never been recovered. Her daughter, whose name is Brittany Beard Hilton, became a police officer. And Hilton was only three years old when her mother disappeared. That breaks my heart. Yeah, I can't even imagine a poor little girl losing her mom and then honestly not really knowing what happened for the longest time. Yeah. She also petitioned the state to alter his parole eligibility from every two years to every five. And she said, he dehumanized my mother and talked about the disposal of her body like it was a piece of garbage. So sad. He was also sentenced to 25 years for solicitation of capital murder for trying to hire someone to kill a witness who was going to testify against him in a murder case. Yeah. Which is wild. 
Next, we're going to discuss the murder of Shelley Sykes in May of 1986. So Shelley was 19 when she disappeared. She worked at Gato's, and that was the same place that Glenda Willis had picked up Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson. So if you remember them from our last episode, I actually didn't know that, but I thought it was an interesting note to include in this one. So she left work at 11.34 p.m. Now, her father, Eddie, wasn't happy she was working there. And because, one, her late hours, and also because of where it was located, he kind of thought of the area as Sin City. So definitely not pleased that his daughter was there. So normally she would leave work and then she would go home and she would watch TV with her dad, which I think is actually really cute. Mm -hmm. And it was Memorial Day weekend. So her father, Eddie, was out of town on a fishing trip and he was outside of Austin. So she left work and she got into her 1980 dark blue Ford Pinto and headed north onto the mainland on her way to her boyfriend's house because she was going to watch movies with him. Now, her boyfriend, Mark, called around 930 while she was at work to invite her to come over. And initially she was a little hesitant because she was tired. She'd been working all day. And as another note, she normally carried a pistol in her car that her father had gotten her. But the gun he had gotten her was too big for her hand, so he had taken it back and he was going to replace it, but he didn't get a chance to before all this happened. So on her way to Mark's, she stopped at a fast food place to grab food and kept chugging along to Mark. When she didn't get there, he called her work to see where she was because he got worried. And they told him, oh, she left a while ago. So he's more worried. The co-worker of Shelley's that Mark talked to said, there are a lot of crazies out tonight, which obviously stuck with Mark long after this because of course it would. Yeah. And it was a holiday weekend. So I'm sure working in the restaurant industry on a holiday weekend, you know, more people are drinking, more people are acting a little more ridiculous. So it's just heartbreaking that, of course, of all nights had to be that night. Yeah. And so the road she took to get to Mark's was I-45. And so Mark thought, oh, maybe she's had car trouble. So he started driving up I-45 to see if he could find her. And he was driving back and forth, seeing like, maybe I missed her. Maybe we're just like, we passed each other or something like that. And he eventually went back home to get his father's help. This time they retraced her whole route. And Mark's father drove while Mark looked out the window to see if he could see anything. Because I could see how you could like miss something if you're driving. Especially on a busy highway. Yeah. I've lived in like this area most of my life. But if Ben's driving, I'm like, oh, my God, look at this thing I've never noticed because (laughs) it's true. Yeah. Like you just don't see stuff. So that's when Mark spotted a car parked with its dome light on. And they pulled over and they realized that it, it was her car, but it was empty. Now, the driver's side window was smashed and there was pieces of glass all over the front seat and there was blood running down the door. Can you just like imagine the horror? Just absolute, ugh, the heartbreak. Yeah. That stone in the pit of your stomach, looking at that being like, this wasn't an accident, like something happened here. Yeah. Right? Like it's one thing if the car is just like there, but this shows a struggle. Well, that and just even finding the car empty in general. Yeah. Yeah. Empty car is bad enough. And then you add blood and then you add broken glass. It's it gets worse and worse. But so Mark thought maybe that there was some type of accident and that she went to get help, which like it hurts my heart that like in that moment he was like, she's fine. Like she has to be fine. Right. I think that's what a lot of people would do is they would be like, it was just this thing. She's going to be okay. We're going to find her. It's going to be fine. I feel like I would do that. Yeah. And so they called the police. Mm hmm. But they didn't really seem worried, which blows my mind. I don't understand. They also, they were like, oh, she just wandered off to find help. And I'm like, there's not many things that I can envision where I'm going to have glass all over my car plus blood. 
No. And I mean, I guess if there was an accident, sure, there could be a little bit of that. But also, it's not normally the yeah the actual side window, right? It's normally going to be like the front window or the... Yeah. Even the back window, something like that. But then, I mean, the blood added means someone is hurt. But also, I think it's just maybe they were overwhelmed because it was a holiday weekend and people were out partying. So they're just like, Ugh. no proof yet. We don't know. We don't have time. Well, this next part just makes me angrier. So they even offer for Mark to be able to take her car so they can get it off the road. And Mark's father was like, no, 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 no. Because something could have happened and they don't want to deserve the evidence. So they had it towed. They're lucky that his father had the brains to be like, no, because let's say they had moved the car. There would be no evidence. Or later on, they'd be like, well, Mark's fingerprints are everywhere, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you're like, yeah, because you told him to drive it, dum-dum. Yeah. So Mark's father asked the tow truck driver to secure the vehicle and to protect any evidence inside. Eddie was notified and he was like speeding home, but he was still five and a half hours away. So at sunrise, Eddie and his wife, Denise, they started making flyers with Shelly's photos and they had volunteers kind of put them up everywhere as much as they could. And Shelly's mom, her name's Erin, she got a $5,000 reward through her employer to help get clues for her to be found. Which I think is just very kind. I don't know a lot of workplaces that do that. Yeah, yeah, maybe smaller places. And so, yeah, and so this was added to all the flyers. So the next day after, they filled out the paperwork at the sheriff's office for a missing persons report. While they were there, two people who were on I-45 that night were describing, this makes me so mad. Yeah. Just like, why are you there the next day for this? But okay, so they were describing how they saw someone following Shelly's car that night in a pickup truck. The pickup truck was driving recklessly and was trying to basically force her off of the road. This sounds like a horror movie, right? Yeah. And it's also like most women's worst fear when they're on a road by themselves is that this this particular thing is going to happen. So they saw Shelly hit her brakes and swerve off on an exit. The pickup truck missed it, but was able to jump onto the service road to get behind her again. So then they saw that her car had spun and slid off onto the shoulder. And they saw the pickup driver get out, pull his shirt off and wrap it around his hand, then pound on her window. And also, like, the only reason why you would put the shirt on your hand first would be so that you weren't cut by the glass that you were about to break. Yeah, exactly. Right. The witness stopped and they saw that her window was broken and that the guy was dragging Shelly from the car. So she looked barely conscious and the person driving the truck yelled at the witness and said something along the lines of like, oh, this is just between us. We're a couple and like that it was some type of like domestic issue. And the person was like, "Okay, I guess like, yeah, they thought that he might have had a gun. Yeah. So I'm sure they were just fearful for their life, too. I just wish at this time there wasn't cell phones. Right. So they had to go somewhere to call, which I wonder if maybe they're like, yeah, maybe you did see a domestic spat. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, this is more. And maybe that's when they went to the police station would be my guess. I don't know, though. So, yes. And the second witness also added that Shelly was conscious and tried to hold onto the doorframe to, to, like, protect herself so they couldn't take her. And the police then updated Eddie on all of this. As a complete aside, Ben and I were walking I don't know. There's like a major street near our house. And we were walking in a spot that was like between two red lights, both of which were green. And a white sedan stopped like in the middle of these when they should have been driving. Yeah. And the passenger door flung open and a woman tried to get out and she started screaming, help me, help me, help me, help me. Oh, no. And yeah. And like Ben instinctively, as the wonderful human he is, went to get her. 
and she screamed, they have a gun. And then the person yanked her back in the car and took off with the door still open. Then it like kind of like slammed shut as they drove. And we immediately called 911 and explained everything. Like immediately that moment did not wait. Yeah. Because I don't care who it's between. It's still not okay. No. Yeah. Also, many a times we've been in parking garages where there will be a man yelling at a woman and a woman trying to leave. It's happened at least three times where Ben has walked up and is like, you need to let her leave. Yeah. And the guy will be like, but no, no, this isn't none of your business. And he's like, it's my business now. She's trying to leave. How you're speaking isn't going to solve whatever this is. Yeah. And it kind of blows my mind that he like that happens out in the world. Yeah. And that I mean, thinking about it now versus back then, though, where now like we've seen someone try to pull over and grab a child before. Oh, my God. Kids walking to school. And we were maybe a block away from work. And immediately we're like, I don't care about my job anymore and get into this mode of nope, this person needs to be found. Yeah. And luckily the kid wiggled out and then the van kept going. But we followed them while I was on the phone with 911. And they're like, we can't advise you to keep following them, but where are they going? And we're like, we get the message. We will be following them. They did lose us in a residential area because kids are walking to school. And we're like, well, we're not going to run over a kid to find this car, you know? Yeah. But we did then keep on the phone with the police, talk to the police, give them everything we could. And then when I got home, I just called out that day. But when I got home, I called every school in the area, notified the principals so they could send letters home of like, maybe for the next week or so, don't let your kid walk to school or make sure that they're walking in a big group. But it's amazing how stuff like that happens. And just thinking back to like back then when there wasn't cell phones, like all you could do is take that mental note, maybe jot it down if you had a pen and paper in your car and then go home or go to the nearest payphone, And that's lost time. You know what else I thought of too? And maybe this is it. Maybe it's not pure speculation. Maybe they had been drinking. It was a holiday weekend. Maybe they're like, I'm just one exit down the road. You know what I mean? And you shouldn't drink and drive. We all know that. But maybe there was like some reason why they didn't because they would have gotten into trouble. Maybe. And I feel like most people will choose their own hide in that situation. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. But woof. Okay. So a forensic artist worked with the witnesses to draw a composite sketch of the driver And he was unshaven and he had longish brown hair, dark eyebrows, and what was described as an angry pout. But no license plate was recorded. So the next day, when there hadn't been any updates, Eddie called someone who might understand what he was going through. And that was John Walsh. And Amanda had mentioned him in our episode about the 70s victims and killers when she talked about Otis O'Toole, who was an associate partner in crime of Henry Lee Lucas, but John Walsh's six-year-old son had been taken from a Sears store in Hollywood, Florida, five years earlier. And then a few days later, his body was found headless. Walsh was a victim's advocate with a special interest in abducted and exploited children. He later went on to become the host of America's Most Wanted. And Eddie wasn't even sure if he would get through, but he was like, this person's going to understand like how I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. And but he did get through. And so Walsh advised Eddie to keep up the publicity and pressure the investigators. It's sad to me that that has to even be done. Like that, that's not the parents or the, you know, the loved one's responsibilities to keep it in the news or to pressure investigators. It just blows my mind that 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 has to be done in order for it to be relevant, you know? Yeah, no, I I so agree with you. Like even reading that line, it makes me cry (laughs) because you lose your child or your child is missing. 
you should be able to rely on law enforcement to help you because literally that's why they're there. And you shouldn't have to be screaming in the news and grieving publicly so people pay attention to you. The case should be handled because it should be handled. When we did our Unsolved episode, one of the things that was like a really hard pill to swallow was just how little there was on so many of them and how there weren't updates and how they didn't link them to other cases and they didn't find their killers and they didn't find that it was, oh, someone in another state who has a similar victimology, right? Like they're just gone. Yeah. And just so (laughs) mad, sad about that. Walsh told Eddie, keep the case in the headlines to keep the cops out of coffee shops and out in the street looking for Shelly. Eddie hired a publicist to promote Shelly's case and continued to make flyers and posters in English. And later, they were also in Spanish. And it's wonderful that they had the means to do that. But like, not everyone can. Not everyone can. I can't say that if I lost a child, I would be like, I better hire a publicist. Like, wouldn't even occur to me. No, nothing like that occurred to me until we researched Texas killing fields, because this is a common trait between a few of the cases is they speak to someone that's gone through it and they're like, you got to just keep it up. You got to keep the pressure on. You have to keep their face on the evening news. Yeah. In order to have people care. And it's disgusting. It is disgusting. And this is a fully different case, but it makes me think of the Kendrick Johnson case as well, because his family is very like, We are going to keep pressing. And people often criticize the family for that. They're like, you're just trying to get attention. You're just trying to get this or that. And it's like, no, this is literally what you need to do in order to have your child's murder solved. Yeah. And I feel silly, but I didn't know that John Walsh went through that until I started researching for this. I didn't either. Yeah, but we were also babies. Like, I was born to love true crime with my mother, who watched Law and Order and America's Most Wanted. Yeah. Well, I'd watched America's Most Wanted, and I just thought, yeah, he was just a host. But yeah, when I researched it for our last episode, and I just, you know, did a few searches and a couple things just to understand what happened, and his case, his son's case, was horrific. Yeah. Well, I mean, six-year-old, it's already horrific. You know what I mean? It's already bad. Yeah. So about 300,000 flyers were printed and they made it to about 40 states, but still no news came. Eddie drove every road he could think of off of I-45 to try and find clues. He even looked in the Calder Road field to see if maybe she was there. And especially after he heard about Laura Miller and Jane Doe. Yeah. He never found anything, but he did hire a plane to fly him over it. So he could see if any of the ground looked like there was like a grave and like if the dirt looked disturbed, but he didn't see anything. Yeah, he did everything he could. Yeah. And he kept her in the news and he kept handing out flyers. He took any tips, including those from psychics, and investigated them and did not wait for authorities. Eight months after she disappeared, another witness came forward and they said that there was two men that night, not just one. He also said that they saw one of the men angrily beat Shelly before pulling her from the car. And law enforcement did not tell Eddie this right away. I hate it. I hate it. I also like, I believe in victims' rights, but I also do believe that some things need to be kept close to the vest so that this way a case can be tried and you can find a confession can be validated, right? Because if everything's out in the news, then when someone confesses, you don't have a way to check to see if that's accurate. Think Henry Lee Lucas, right? Like he, he could have all the cases because he could have all the cases, right? 
Yeah, but what what I don't like, what I meant, is eight months later. Like, you had to have seen her in the news, or you had to have seen one of those flyers. Eight months is a long freaking time. Exactly. Well, and also, if you didn't see her in the news, if you didn't see the flyers, you saw someone beat someone. Well, yeah, that too. But you know, like, it wasn't... Yeah, it was clear. You know, it wasn't like a weird bar fight, or, you know, like, where the person walked away from it. It was like... Oh, I see what you're saying. You're like, this person's not okay because you can see that people are looking for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they didn't make it home that night. Yeah. So Eddie reached out to someone higher up in the FBI and the FBI supervisor called local police and two agents were assigned to the case, but it still didn't help. That year, Shelley's family continued the search and they continued to put pressure on law enforcement. Billboards were donated on I-45 that had her picture and the suspect's sketch. The family continued all of their efforts and doubled down and worked as hard as they could to get her home. The reward grew to $12,000 and they continued to send flyers out. Yeah, they worked their butts off to try to find her. The billboards too remind me of the Vallow kids because they, they did put billboards up along the highway there when they were still missing. On June 22nd, 1987, John Robert King saw a poster of Shelley in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. He was drunk. He stumbled back across the bridge to the El Paso Motel where he had been staying. And he called 911 around 4 p.m. begging for help, saying that he tried to hang himself and also slit his wrists. When police got there, there were two suicide notes where he had claimed to be involved with the kidnapping of Shelley. He was then taken into protective custody. He was immediately transported to the hospital. And then the next day, the police returned, read him his rights, and then they took an oral statement about his involvement. King ended up implicating a friend, too, who was his drinking buddy. He'd also done drugs with him, and his name was Gerald Peter Zwurst. And three days after that, after he checked out of the hospital, the police then brought him to a judge to have his rights read again. And then he was transported to a station where detectives, who were Wayne Kessler and Tommy Hansen, interviewed him. Both of the detectives also had worked on this case for more than a year at this time. They also recorded the interview. He basically went through and described the day. Him and Gerald, he called him Jerry, but him and Jerry had been fishing in Galveston. They were drinking, they were smoking pot, and the pot was laced with PCP. Sounds terrible. (laughs) That seems like an extra night. That sounds truly terrible. Like, we're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. It's a lot. Yeah. That night around midnight... They were in Zwarst's pickup truck driving off the island when they noticed Shelly. His story says that he gave her like a friendly wave. And what he says is, she shot me the finger. In his story, Zwarst was driving and then he told what Shelly had done. Zwarst, in his words, flipped out and forced her off the road, broke her glass and then pulled her from the car. King claimed to be out of it because he was on drugs and he had been drinking and that he was barely involved. He did, though, admit to helping him carry Shelly and put her on the front floorboard of the truck. He claimed that they were going to take her to the hospital, which if you're taking someone to the hospital, you're not throwing them in the floorboard. He went on to say something about her climbing into the back of the truck. And then he also said something along the lines of, I got on top of her. He also mentions, I don't know if I had intercourse with her. So I understand he was on a bunch of things, but I feel like he remembered more than he was letting on here. Then he says, I heard her whimpering and crying, so I backed off. He continued to say that he ended up at his parents' house in Backliff, 
And that area is about 26 miles from where her car was left. He claims that Zvorst then disappeared with Shelly and a shovel. And just after that, he went about his life like nothing happened. He says that he had turned himself in because of the constant publicity. So Walsh was right. If you keep it in the news long enough, something's going to come. He wanted to deny that it happened, but he couldn't get away from it. So I'm sure his conscience was just like, you messed up. Why would you do this? While he gave the recount of that night, his story kept changing, though. He would say things like, he busted the window out, or maybe I did. When the detective asked, well, what caused her death? He replied, must have been the shovel. So it seemed like he just didn't either know the details or he couldn't remember what happened at certain points or if he did it or if he was watching his friend do it. Four days after his attempted suicide, he was given a concealed recorder to go meet with Zvorst. And he tried to bait him with some of the questions, but Zvorst denied knowing what he was talking about. So I I assume he probably suspected that something was up. Like, why would you all of a sudden out of the blue come and talk about something horrible we did? Yeah, fair. Also, you can tell who's like the dominant person in this relationship. If you've watched a lot of Criminal Minds, then you feel very, then you know, you know. Then you know. Well, then he admitted he remembered. His story was similar to King's, but it did have a lot of differences at the same time. He claimed that King was driving and King forced her off the road and King is the one that abducted her. He also said that after the abduction, they took her to a park where King put her in the bed of the truck and then climbed on top of her. He wasn't sure if King raped her, but Zor said the last time I heard any sound out of her was when she was on the floorboard. She tried to get up one time and he kicked her back down. It's awful and that they both don't even really know what happened. They just know that they did something terrible. So neither of the two men admitted responsibility for her murder. And neither confirmed if she was dead or alive when she was buried. King claimed that Zorst had taken a shovel and the body out to the woods. Zorst said that he didn't even know there was a body because he was out of it at the time that this all happened. The detectives had lab results that confirmed the blood inside the car was indeed King's blood. So it wasn't her. It was probably when he was breaking the window. He also had scars on his arm from breaking the window. Witnesses also identified him as the one that drove the pickup truck and the one that pulled Shelly from the car. So remember, he was trying to pin it on the other guy. So gradually, King started to understand that he was the one behind the abduction and pretty much everything that happened. So he started saying things like, oh, man, I couldn't have. And he started to sob. King was asked, well, where did you bury her then? And at one point, he said, right there out back of my mom's house. When asked what finally killed her, he responded, the shovel maybe? Seems like I remember. Unless she was already dead, jabbing her with the shovel. She was in the grave and the dirt was on top. I can't remember doing it, but I can picture myself doing it. It's just sad. You know, like they took someone's life and I still, you know, both of them were there, but they took someone's life and they can't even give the credit of remembering what they did to her. It's disgusting. So King then did agree to take the detectives to the grave to recover her body. As they prepared, King then asked to talk to a lawyer. And then at that point, everything stopped and then he stopped cooperating. In the weeks that followed, the detectives got a search warrant and they took 600 officers, deputies, volunteers, everyone to go and search the brush in the woods behind his parents' house. They even used cadaver dogs, helicopters, forensic teams, different types of equipment. And basically what what one of these was, and I'd never heard of it before, 
they had a forensic team that manned gas emission equipment, and it was designed to detect vapors released from decomposition. Even with all of that, all of the volunteers, everything, they found nothing. Both of their trials were shifted outside the Houston-Galveston area in hopes to get an impartial jury. The case was so big in the headlines for so long, no one fought the defense's motions. They wanted to ensure that it wouldn't be an issue they could raise on the appeal. I would imagine that they don't want there to be any grounds for appeals. Yeah, they just want to be secure in what they're doing. So after the first trial, other witnesses then came forward. Men who had been jailed was worst the year after the abduction when he was arrested for public intoxication came forward and said that while in jail, he had described helping pull Shelly out of the truck and that he had watched as she was buried. They even had a few other notes saying that Shelly had regained consciousness and moved and then King hit her with the shovel. So remember how he kept saying like, I think she was dead. I don't know. It sounds like she was still alive. Detectives then were able to match some hairs that were found in Zor's truck with some of Shelly's hairs that they got from her hairbrush. At the time of both the trials, both men were convicted and given life sentences on the kidnapping charges. The jurors afterwards gave interviews and agreed that they believed the men had not only abducted her, but they did believe, too, that they were indeed the murderers as well. Once in prison, a deal attempt was made to Zwarst, offering him immunity on the murder charges if he would just take them to the remains, and Zwarst and his attorney agreed to do so. So on September of 1990, he was hypnotized. And then there was a three-day search that started in the park, because remember, they said that they had gone to a park too, and that park was near the power company where King's father had worked. So he knew the area well. A white shirt was found, but unfortunately, no bones. The shirt had been hand-altered, and it was a small size, so that's why they thought it was Shelly's, because that was something that she tended to do with her clothes, is kind of alter them to fit her better. King and Zorst were eligible for parole since 2007, and when it comes up, Shelly's family takes the time to protest, wanting them to serve their full sentence. Under Texas law at the time of the offense, a life sentence was a maximum of only 40 years. That's dumb. That is dumb. So on the 10-year anniversary of her disappearance, Aaron placed a marker carved with Shelly's name in a cemetery. Eddie built a memorial at his lake house when he was interviewed for the book. So I've, I've talked about this book in the other episodes, but the book is called Deliver Us. And they did an interview with him and he said, there are still things I want to do with my life. The biggest one is that I want to find Shelly's remains. I want to bury my daughter breaks my heart that he knows what happened, but like he really doesn't know everything because they don't even know where she is. Also that he's like, I want to do things with my life. And that thing is that he wants to just bury his daughter, like the most base things you should be able to do as a grieving parent. And I'm crying again. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so sad. I'm sorry. All of this is so heavy. And just even when I read that book, when they were doing interviews, it's when they talk to family members and friends where I either have to take breaks or I'm just sitting there with tears in my eyes because it's like these people had to live through this. And, you know, we we talk about it. But these people, like their lives are changed forever when someone decides to do something so horrible for no particular reason, just because. Yeah. And here it seemed like it was this rage filled moment because a woman slighted them. Yeah. I will say, too, reading this makes me apprehensive of driving like a little bit 
in like long swaths by myself because during law school, I would drive up I-95 on the East Coast and I would do a 12 hour straight shot from Florida to Baltimore. And after doing this research, I don't know if I would do that again. No. And after this particular story, just knowing that, you know, they they smashed the window, they left the car and it took him a while, you know, the boyfriend to find her car and his father that people drove past this car like nothing happened. And so every time I'm driving and I see a car on the side of the road, I think of her story. I'm like, did something happen? A lot of the time, you know, cars break down, they run out of gas, they get flat tires. But in my head, it's something like this. And then I'm like, should I be calling the police every time I see a car? It's stressful. Do you use Waze? Waze? No, no. Mm -hmm. W-A-Z-E. It is a GPS application. And one of the things, it's like a lot of other ones. It's just my preferred one. But one of the things you can do is you can report a broken down vehicle. So in this world, if Mark was driving down I-45, likely somebody who had gone before him would have marked vehicle on the side of the road and he would have known exactly where to look. See, and that's what technology is doing for us. So that's great. I didn't know that that was a thing, but now I'm going to have to download it now. And it's a thing where like, if I'm able, like if I'm the passenger, then I will like mark cars on the side of the road and stuff and like mark yet. And then it'll ask like, yes, it's still there. If you're somebody driving past something that's already been reported. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to download that. Well, one last little note. So 30 years after Shelly's death, Eddie still keeps a shovel in the back of his car and he'll occasionally stop and search random fields in the area. Oh, man. He just wants his baby. I compare Eddie to Tim Miller. Just he did everything. He pressured. He met with people. He was committed. And I just feel bad that he doesn't get to get any sort of closure. He's just sitting and waiting still. I mean, I will say the fact that the people who killed her are in prison for life or 40 years is something, right? It's a different type of closure that he gets versus Tim Miller, who has Laura's remains. But it is terrible nonetheless. Yeah. So the next case we're going to talk about is the murder of Elizabeth Jones. And this is from September of 1987. Now, Elizabeth lived alone and she worked as a manager on the NASA shuttle project. On September 8th of 1987, she called her boyfriend to let him know that she was going to head to bed early. And she also mentioned while they were on the phone that there was a roofer that was there and he was still working. Weird. And he was on the roof above her bedroom, which I'm assuming if it's if she's going to bed, it's dark. I've never heard of a roofer doing work in the dark. Unless it's like an emergency situation, you know, like something crazy happened and they don't want either like water or. Yeah. 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 But nothing I saw said it was that. So the next day she doesn't show up to work. So her friends come to her house to check on her and the door was locked, but they still entered the house to see if she was all right. I'm presuming one of them had a key and they looked around for her, but they didn't see her in the house. Her car was still parked in the driveway, but Jones, her purse and her bathrobe were missing. I don't know if I would notice a bathrobe missing from someone's house, but I guess like, I don't know, say you like know your best friend's bedroom and you're like, oh, her robe always hangs here. Like I might notice it then, but otherwise I don't think I would. Neither would I. Yeah. So the inside of her house didn't look like there had been signs of a struggle or that there had been forced entry. However, when police got there, they found cigarette butts and ashes. They also found that there was a bottle of wine that was almost empty. Neither Jones nor her boyfriend smoked, and Jones didn't drink. Police questioned the roofer that had been doing work above her bedroom, and his name was Timothy Gribble. And originally, he said that he did come into the house, but he did so to wash his hands, and that he had come back later because he had dropped his wallet, 
and Jones had let him in to get it. Now, after that initial interview, he fled the state for a few days and went to Tennessee where he had relatives. Tennessee law enforcement took Gribble into custody at the end of September. And then law enforcement from Texas came to question him again, and he was transported to the Harris County Sheriff's Department in Houston. After being Mirandized, he confessed to the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of Elizabeth Jones. Horrible. Yeah. Gribble stated that he took Jones to the bedroom and had sex with her. His account was that she was scared at first, but then she enjoyed it. Gribble asked Jones not to tell anyone about the incident. Jones told Gribble she would have to report the incident to the police, and he ended up taking her from the home and when she was just wearing her bathrobe. I feel like that's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like she wouldn't be like, well, now I have to tell police. Yeah. She probably like, I mean, if someone was like, don't tell anyone, perhaps I would yell very intense expletives. Right. It's just, oh, this guy's so gross. Gribble told police that he told Jones that he was going to tie her to a tree naked in the dark woods so he could spend time with his ex-wife and stepchildren before he got arrested. So just tuck that in your head. Yeah. Jones screamed and, and tried to get free, but when he covered her mouth, she bit him. He took the sash of her rope and he strangled her with it. Then he dragged her body under a tree and then moved a branch so it was kind of covering her. And then he got rid of her purse. Also, it was Jones's ex-husband who hired a PI who helped figure out that Gribble was involved. And Gribble eventually led investigators to Jones's body and her purse. He eventually was convicted of capital murder. So during the punishment phase of his trial, he also admitted to other offenses he had done, but he was never charged with. One was burglarizing his father's motorhome. Another was entering a woman's home under false pretenses and sexually assaulting her. Another was possessing a controlled substance. He also offered a 15-year-old girl in the neighborhood a ride home, then forced her to engage in oral sex and sexual intercourse over the course of several hours. He's a disgusting human being. Yeah. He also bought a stolen pickup truck. Nine days after the rape, kidnapping, and murder of Jones, he gained entry into his ex-wife's apartment under false pretenses. Seems like he does that a lot. And then he sexually assaulted her. And it's with delight we say this next part. Yeah. He was executed on March 15th of 2000 by lethal injection. And I still think that's not even good enough. No. He was a garbage human. Yeah. I want him to be tortured like he did to all these women. Yeah. So our next series of murders are all done by one man, and his name is Anthony Allen Shore. He's also known as the tourniquet killer for his particular method of killing. These are some of the heaviest, I think, of all of the Texas killing fields. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things about Shore is that in the court documents, there's testimony and accounts from a lot of the women in his life about what a scumbag he is. And I feel like you you hear like, oh, he was such a nice man. I would never have thought this was him. I mean, obviously for Gribble, we knew that this guy was a scumbag, right? Yeah. So it's not all the time. But like, for sure, he was... You're evil. Evil, I think, personally. Yeah. And I'm generally not in favor of the death penalty, but Gribble and Shore... They're on par with the worst of the worst. They should just not exist in our world. The fact that our world has people like that makes me terrified. Anthony Allen Shore, his first victim in the Texas Killing Field, started in the 80s, so we're going to include him in this round. So first of Anthony Allen Shore's victims from the Texas Killing Field, because he has victims outside of it too, is Laurie Tremblay. She was only 14 when she disappeared. 
She left her apartment in the early morning between 6.15 and 6.40 to catch her bus to go to school. And sometimes Laurie would accept rides from strangers and they think that perhaps Shore had picked her up. Tremblay's remains were found outside of a restaurant by the manager. He said he saw a Caucasian man standing next to the body. Creepy. Yeah. She had died of strangulation and it looked like a ligature had been applied and then tightened and tightened and tightened from the way that the marks looked. Also, it looked as though there was a stick-like object that had been used to tighten the ligature, but there wasn't an actual ligature on her neck. There were also black marks on her legs. That's weird. Yes. And so for this one, we're going to talk about each victim and then we'll talk about his arrest. Then we'll move on to some of the ways that they linked each victim to him. And well, then we'll continue on. So the next victim is Diana Ribayar. She was nine years old when she disappeared in 1994. She was found two days later. She had left her home to go to the neighborhood store to buy sugar, but she never came back. Two witnesses saw a man loading a roll of carpet into an open van in a concealed area. When she was found, her body was behind a vacant building, and she was only wearing a t-shirt that was pulled up. From the way that they found her, it was clear that she had been sexually assaulted. Investigators found gold carpet-like fibers on her body, and the ligature was still on her neck and appeared to have been tightened with a bamboo stick. There also appeared to be a bite mark on her chest, and the medical examiner also confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted. That's absolutely disgusting. It is. It, it truly is. That one was one of the harder ones to read. So one of his next victims, and it's sad there's so many, but another one that was tied to this area is Maria del Carmen Estrada. Estrada was walking to work in the early morning in 1995 and accepted a ride from shore. Her partial nude remains were discovered that same morning. Her bra had been cut and her pantyhose had been torn. She had been strangled with a rope and a wooden dowel had been inserted into the ligature to tighten it. She died of strangulation. She also had some marks on her chest, and it appeared to be either a bite or from a serrated knife. Yeah. So you, you can obviously see this pattern from each of these women, what he was doing to them. The next one tied to this area is Dana Sanchez, and she was only 16 when she disappeared. The date she disappeared was July 6th of 1995, and she was found later that year. She was walking to her boyfriend's house when Shore offered her a ride. And then on July 14th of 1995, an unidentified man called the news station's tip line and gave the anchor directions on where to locate the body of the teenage girl. The caller then advised to use a helicopter and that she would be lying face up. He also described a piece of Sanchez's jewelry and gave her birth date. Police followed the directions and found her body. There was a ligature around her neck with a toothbrush handle twisted in a knot on the side of her neck. Same thing. Unfortunately, her cause of death was strangulation. In 1995, a task force was formed to investigate the unsolved murders because they were noticing a pattern of young, petite Hispanic girls who were in the same area that had been murdered by strangulation with a ligature. Shore was arrested in 2003 when his DNA matched to Maria del Carmen Estrada. He gave a statement about Rebillar, Sanchez, and Estrada and padded the photos from the other cases and asked the investigators, what would you say if I tell you about this case and a couple of bonuses? So disgusting. I hate him so much. Hate him. And so Shore's ex-wife said that the knots in the rope match the knots that Shore used when he was making drums because that's something he would do. 
So early on, they're like, okay. A couple other things to note about these women and their cases. Lori Tremblay was originally not considered to be one of the cases that was investigated by the task force because she wasn't Hispanic and the ligature was not left on her neck. Shore then asked the investigators about Lori. The investigators purposefully named the wrong location for where her body was found, and Shore corrected them. Ugh, I don't like it. Right? He's so cocky, too. Like, nope, here's my work. Shore admitted to killing Lori and said that he thought that he may have run her body over, which is why there were black marks on her leg. The DNA was too degraded to obtain results from any of her fingernail clippings. And there was also insufficient DNA to test the hook area of her bra. For Diana, additionally, the DNA found on her matched Shore. For Maria, there was some evidence of sexual assault and samples were taken from her body. The DNA did match Shore. And then for Dana, her body was too decomposed to obtain a DNA profile. Shore, though, did confess to sexual assault and the murderer. He also said that he was the caller that had called into the news tip line, which is, you know how you mentioned Criminal Minds earlier, like they want to be involved in their own case. And that's what I think of, too. Like, I could see this whole episode playing out. Yeah, exactly. Truly, truly. Okay, so we're going to talk just generally about what kind of a terrible human he was in addition to doing these things. So Shore also sexually assaulted his two daughters. His daughters also did provide statements in his court documents. So we'll get to the, a little bit more about that because women in his life as well as his daughters talk about that. Shore also admitted to the aggravated sexual assault of a 14-year-old girl in 1993. So he told the girl that he had been watching her and named her high school and where she practiced soccer. He wrapped duct tape around her head, bound her hands, and he forcibly removed her clothes and sexually assaulted her. He told her he would return and kill her unless she gave the wrong description of her attacker to the police. She then continued to receive calls from Shore, and then other times it was just heavy breathing. A tap was placed in the line and the calls were coming from different locations even one where there was telephone equipment, but no actual phone. Shore's DNA matched the samples taken from the girl, and her name was Joanna Lesher. And an interesting note here that Shore worked for the telephone company. So that's one of the reasons he was able to do that was because the access he had. That's also an easy way to like get access to people's houses, I'm sure. Yeah. So I've mentioned it a few times as we discussed this, but there are accounts that were given by several women in his life. And we're going to go into those now because I think that it gives a really robust picture of what a piece of garbage he is. So the first one is Regina Shore Belt, who was Shore's sister. And she said Shore had killed a kitten when he was about four or five years old. And Shore had pushed a screwdriver through her head when they were kids, which is horrific horrible in itself but then like also these are all the classic signs you know hurting animals hurting your siblings from 1972 to 1977 shore would make her knock on doors of houses and then shore would try to kiss and grope the girls that opened the doors very weird very very weird very bizarre shore would also drive around high schools and offer rides to some of the girls i hate it and it also like tracks with who he is yeah, yeah. And she had also reported Shore to CPS because she thought that he was acting inappropriately with his two daughters from his previous marriage. And he had custody. So it's just, it's gross. Shore would also leave his daughters alone in the house, locked with 
deadbolts and nailed windows. I wonder what happened with that CPS report. You never know. He could have been really good at convincing people that he wasn't a sick fuck. And I honestly, I think that he likely was because I would love to think that like you couldn't get away with all of this horrendous shit if you weren't also incredibly charismatic. Right. So Elizabeth Martin, who was Shore's girlfriend from 1993 to 1994, also spoke. And she said that one of Shore's daughters had told her that Shore was touching her inappropriately. Shore usually drove her father's van to work. But in the first week of August of 1994, he came home in the middle of the day and handed her a broken dowel rod. The gold carpet had been ripped from the van. Now, remember earlier we talked about gold fibers and a dowel rod. Yes, that's horrible because he had just murdered a little girl. She also thought that Shore would drug her coffee and have sex with her while she was unconscious. After she moved out of Shore's house, she went to a bar with Shore and his friend Gary. She didn't remember anything after leaving the bar until she temporarily regained consciousness while Gary was having sex with her at Shore's house. She thought at this point, too, that she had also been drugged. Insane. So... The next two accounts are from his daughters, Amber Fallon McCabe and Tiffany Shore. So Amber said that her father had begun touching her inappropriately when she was in kindergarten and that he would stand naked in her bedroom door at night and touch himself while they were sleeping. Tiffany also said that Shore touched her inappropriately, that he would give her and Amber hot chocolate that tasted strange and made them sleep. He would tie them up in their sheets and smother their faces with a pillow if they cried. He locked them in the house and with the windows nailed or glued shut. He would yank them by their hair, throw them over his knee, and he would spank the bottom of their feet so it hurt to walk. In 1997, Amber and Tiffany admitted to their grandmother that he had been sexually assaulting them and he was charged with indecency with a child, which like what a horrific thing to have to go through. That makes me really sad for both of them. It makes me so, so sad. But I am glad they like went to their grandmother and were able to. Yeah. Be open. Yeah. As we talk about this, we're talking about this like one after another. Right. Whereas, you know, Elizabeth Martin, she suspected that he was drugging her hot chocolate. She didn't. You know what I mean? Like if she had seen him drug the girls, then she would have known because they were like, oh, our hot chocolate tasted weird. So Amy Lynch was Shore's wife from 1997 to 1999. She married Shore when she was only 20. He told her that she had to keep her hair long so she looked young. She saw him put Benadryl in his daughter's hot chocolate so that they would sleep heavily. Lynch often felt hungover or sore in her chest and neck. He tried to convince her that she would enjoy sex more if she let him choke or strangle her. And she also knew that he would tap phone lines when he worked for the phone company, which is probably one of the reasons why he was like, oh, if you call the police, like give them a wrong account because... If she said what he looked like on the phone, he might know. Yeah. Yeah, he'd know. She also thought that Shore had drugged her without her consent during the relationship. The tipping point for her was that she had an interaction with Shore where he choked her and she pretended to be unconscious and he had sex with her. It's amazing to me that he never murdered any of his girlfriends or ex-wives. Yes. I also... We talked about it in our 70s episode about the murderer who said, no woman will live after she has sex with me. It was um, Latham and Napa. And that very much rings from this, that the women who he was sexually assaulting that were not his daughters, like he did it once where he threatened her, but he was probably like, I can't keep up this level of intimidation forever. Right. And so 
I think it was to avoid capture and to avoid repercussions for what he what he had done. Well, even I'm just surprised that they were able to walk away from the relationship because like once they were done, even like months down the road that he didn't like go back for them. That's fair. That's fair. Someone else that came forward. Her name was Pauline Elizabeth Cody, and she dated him from 1999 to 2002. And she met Shore when she was only 21. And she moved into Shore's house when he was in the process of divorcing Amy. The first time they had sex, Shore put his hands on her throat and she became lightheaded. Shore also did cocaine and would act as though he was not home when his probation officer would come to the door. Is that an adequate avoidance? Like, oh, I'm not home. I'm never home. It's very weird. You would think that they, I guess, would do more to find him if he was never home. Yeah, that's what I would think. And also, if he was doing cocaine, wouldn't he have random drug tests? Just what I would think for probation. I don't know. So Shore made collages of women, kept pornography of young women, and went to festivals and parties where there would be children. Although it was a violation of his probation to have contact with minors. Once when Shore and Pauline were watching a movie where someone was being strangled, Shore told her that the eyes should be red and bloodshot and that the scene was incorrect. I don't know how I would react in that situation. I feel like I would be like, I need to get away from this individual. If they know what eyes should look like. Right? Like, that's weird. Yeah. I mean, I have that knowledge from trauma in my life. So I don't think knowing it is bad, but I think it's all in the delivery, right? Like, from everything about this dirt bag, I imagine that he gleefully corrected it. Maybe. Yeah. And just him strangling her and then talking about that, like, that's a lot. So another girlfriend that came forward was Linda White, and they had dated from 2002 to 2003, so right after. And she learned he was on probation and going to a sex offender class after he had moved in with her. She thought Shore was looking at missing children's websites on her computer. Gross. Yeah. He also had grabbed the back of her throat while they were having sex and told her he would not hurt her. And then also per Sharon Burns, the director of the sex offender program that he was attending, he was aware of what was socially acceptable, but would break the law if he could get away with it. I hate him so much. Yeah. So again, with pleasure, I'd like to say that he was sentenced to death. Now, we've talked about habeas corpus petitions in the past. Just briefly, what a habeas corpus petition is. Habeas corpus petition is a federal remedy when you've exhausted all of your appeals, when you're trying to say that the punishment was unconstitutional. So Shore filed his writ of habeas corpus in 2017, claiming that he had significant brain damage at the time of his 2004 conviction, which caused aggression, violence, and impaired cognition, which would cause him difficulty in reasoning and trouble in identifying the consequences of his choices, which feels completely at odds with what Sharon Burns said. So accordingly, Shore argued that because he had brain damage at the time of his conviction, and presumably at the time when he actually committed the crimes, Shore's counsel contended that the death penalty was unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Which can I tell you, the fact that this guy, dare I say this fucker, was like, it's cruel and unusual. I literally think that you should be skinned alive, my guy. Like, and I mean that. 
Yeah. I mean, some of them were children and you can't. It just can't. Yeah. No. And Shore's counsel argued that the death penalty was a disproportionate response when you would consider Shore's culpability given his mental state. And so counsel likened Shore's cognitive disabilities to those of an intellectually disabled person and intellectually disabled people are exempt from execution in Texas. And the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas dismissed Shore's writ, stating that the applicant failed to show that a person with brain damage, like an intellectually disabled person, should be exempt from execution. And he was executed on January 19th of 2018. And we all celebrated. We all celebrated. Deserved. Yeah. He was a truly awful human being. Truly, truly awful human being. I hate him. And I'm glad he no longer exists on this planet. That series is one that like really gets me with Texas Killing Fields because this is one person, like one person who did this much damage to people. Yeah, having the ability to end so many lives. And also give people so much trauma. His daughters, his girlfriends, his wives, his sister. Like that's a lot of people to impact in such a terrible way. So fuck him, you know, fuck him. So our next episode on Texas Killing Fields will be our 90s and 2000s which might be a little bit longer because there's a bunch of them. It's hard to believe, you know, that it started so long ago. And again, obviously, they're different killers, but it's just insane that this area is still seeing things like this. Yes, yes. Now, albeit, I think that they're different than what we were seeing in the 70s. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they're going to change, but it's just crazy that it's still a thing and it's still a thing happening for so long with so many different victims and so many different killers out there and different methods. Yeah, I agree. Well, this is a sad one. We're going to leave you with some some sadness on this one. We are coming closer to a close of our Texas Killing Field marathon, if you will. Should you have any long form cases that you're interested in, let us know. We have our True Crime Digest where we cover ongoing cases and then we give some bite-sized cases. We do full episodes on cases. But for things like this where it's a multi-parter, if you have ideas on that or any of the aforementioned types of episodes, feel free to send us a message on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter tweet at us. We've been getting a lot of good suggestions, too. So thank you for those that have reached out. Yeah. Yeah. And a special thank you to our Patreons, as always. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thank you for listening to Cruel Creep. Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime and everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised.